Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our Rembaum Institute series, The Poetry of Prayer, with Rabbi Joel Rembaum. We're working our way now through the blessings that precede the Shema, and we're looking at it in the Machzor, because we saw before that there are certain sections that are added in, but here very little, although, well, I won't go into the details right now, but... um I mean, the point, one of the reasons why I selected this was that the people should know, because people who come to synagogue primarily in the high holidays assume that the prayers that they read are high holiday prayers. The fact of the matter is what we're reading right now is are not high holiday prayers. This section of the prayer book has said the exact same words uh, every day in the morning, every day, 300 and, 354 days of a lunar year, okay? Mm-hmm. All right. I mean, so this is routine stuff. And yet what we've seen is there are uh principles and themes and concepts in these prayers that play major roles in the high holiday machzor, in the high holiday liturgy, because they are that significant. Okay, they are they're they're very basic prayers, but the high holiday prayer book in the prayers written specifically for the high holidays pick out the ones and emphasize the ones like kingship, like judgment and compassion. Okay, these things, remembering these themes that occur, flow throughout the normal liturgy are picked up upon in the in the machzor and, uh, you know, the high, uh, highlighted. Okay, and, I mean, the whole concept of repentance, right? Mm-hmm. It's a basic principle. That's at work on the high holidays, right? Repenting for our sins. Well, the question is, when should a person repent? Every day. Every day. I was about to say the day before you die, but since you don't know when you're going to die, that means every day. Right. Rambam says you should not do that because you don't know what day you're going to die. So, right. So uh, the point is, it's a basic principle all year long. Right, because you don't have to wait for the holiday to say I'm sorry to somebody, and to try to repair a relationship. You shouldn't. The high holidays is, so to speak, to to clean up any of the big or small stuff that you didn't deal with. Right? Some people have problems in, in, in interpersonal relationships that they should have worked on, but it's hard to do it. Right? You know what I'm talking about. It's hard for people mm-hmm. to admit they're wrong to somebody, mm-hmm. you know, and, and but you got to do it. But so you kept, you know, putting it off, putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. High holidays is a time, especially during the ten days of repentance, when you should be motivated to to bite the bullet and turn to that person and say, "I'm sorry." But it's it's it, but you should have done it, you know, right after you did something. Right. That's the point. Okay, so the high holiday machzor then is like a big push, a spiritual and ethical push to get us to clean house. It's like Pesach before the Seder, right? You got to clean house. It's not just by us. It's not just spring cleaning, right? It's spiritual cleaning. It's ritual cleaning, right? Okay. 
All right. So now, however, last week, right in the midst of the the prayer that we're reading at looking uh, at right now, the Yotzer prayer, which somebody tell me, what is the overriding major theme of this prayer? What is the overriding major theme of the Yotzer prayer? We are thanking God for having created created what? The response is uh, is everything. It's the very first line. Right. Thank God for creating everything. Right, but the blessing and us and our relationship. Right, everything. Okay, so God is creator. But what specific element of the creation does it give special focus to? To, the, to God. Goodness. It's to, to God. To well, the God, of course. I mean, they're praising, the angels are praising God. For wait, wait, wait. Good points. That, that you're jumping ahead a little bit now, Barbara. Hold on. <laughs> Hold that thought. You're not wrong. Hold that thought. But what is the, what is the, remember, it talks about God created Yotzer HaMeorot, the lights. It's a celebration of the creation of light and the lights. The heavenly host. Okay. We saw that term coming up in the preliminary paragraphs and it will end in the prayer we're going to look at tonight, which is simply Yotzer Hama Orot, God who creates the heavenly host. Okay. Yes, but it is an extension of the whole concept of God as creator. Right. As universal. And it's a universal prayer. It's not specifically focused on God's relationship to the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. It's everything with a, with a special focus on light. Because remember, you are waking up in the morning and on a daily basis when you said this prayer, you were supposed to say it when the first light of sunrise appears. Right. But you have the natural phenomenon to go with the liturgy. And that, can, if you've ever done that, mm-hmm. a very powerful thing. I mean, you know, those of us who uh, uh, stay, I don't do it anymore. Um, I'm not as young as I used to be. Um, but there are numbers of people at Bethlehem and other synagogues who on Shavuot, the night before Shavuot, they have a tikkun where they stay up all night. And they're, they either go up outside on the roof in Daven or in the, one of the fields, or they go, um, they will go into the, um, one second, uh, or, or, or in a, in a room where there's big windows, you know, and they, when you do that, you actually see the first rays of the sun and you're saying this blessing and it's really powerful. So, but that's the ideal. Okay. All right. So then, however, in the midst of all of this praising of God for creation and especially the focus on light, right? And being the morning light. Suddenly, Barbara, we have a whole section dedicated to what? The angels. God creating the angels, mm-hmm. right? So there's a, the rabbis ask a question about a passage in the Torah. Mayan Shemitah Yitzel Har Sinai. What does creating the angels have to do with creating the heavenly lights, the sun, the moon, the stars? Angels are from something else. Why did they stick it there? It's a separate thing. Why? Think about it. God needed help. He needed help. She needed help. 
I would say no, because it's clear that God did not need help. And in fact, the, the prayers themselves, as you recall, talk about the fact who, who else, whom else did God create? The angels. Yeah, but, but he, he needed the angels to go down to earth to talk to like Abraham and uh, some yeah, other but that's people. Not the, that's not the thing that they're talking about in the prayer. Yeah, I mean, you're right. The way that the Bible stories develop, but that's not, that's not what they're talking to here. They're talking about the, the angels praising God, the creator, you know? Is, okay, wait, Tybal, hands up. Right. Is it because since the angels are not corporeal, if the angels can do the praising, then, then the humans that are praising aren't as focused about the tangible nature of creation? <coughs> well, um, but we're also focusing in our prayer on God's power, which is invisible, right? We're recognizing, basically, we are recognizing, and remember, this is explicitly, explicitly expressed in the, in the Kedusha, in the sanctification part of the Amidah, where mm-hmm. it, we talked about this last week, right? Where it says, we will praise God the same way the angels do, Okay. So, but here it's simply talking about the angels praising God. All right. I think you're close. You're, you're close to what I had in mind and I, what I think most scholars come up with. So let's, let's think a little bit more. What other reason could it be why the rab, why the rabbinic, the liturgists, the rabbinic liturgists decided to put the angels right here in the midst of the prayer? <laughs> really praises God for creation. With the focus on light. Hmm. Here. Any other thoughts? Does it have something to do with humanity? In what respect? Connection, some type of connection. Well, the, the angels do have a connection with God, to be sure, right? Mm-hmm. Very special connection. Okay. So I'm not quite sure that I understand it. Yeah, relationship is part of a lot of this stuff. There's no question. Relationship is, but the angels have their own unique relationship with God. We have our own unique relationship with God, which we're going to get to in just a second. With when we no, uh, the second part of the class tonight will deal with that. Okay. All right. So let me let me offer a thought. Okay, Alan, you're trying to. Okay. Could it be that this is called Kiddushat Yotzer, the act of creation? And in Genesis, it says, let us create God in our own image. So you, maybe you have that it was like the royal we including the angels that are otherwise there and are trying to deal with light in some way. Right. That, that's that's what the Midrash says. Okay. Yes, you are a good Midrashic. You are a rabbinic Jew like the rest <laughs> of us. Yes. But that's not what this is saying. No, you're the rabbi. We're not. <laughs> We're, you're, this doesn't talk about partnering, right? This talks about these the angels being creatures who yell and who praise God over and over. It talks about the harmony that exists among the angels. They ask permission from each other. You know, after you, no, after you, after you, you get this impression, you know, and they want to be modest. They're working together. It's totally harmonious and they're praising God. That's all it says. But except one other thing. 
who created the angels. Hashem. That's it. See, that's the point. That's why I thought Taibo were maybe where you were sort of heading. The notion being that the creator God did not only create the creator, did not only create things material, things visible. He also created the things spiritual. So there's one creator who creates both the material and the spiritual realms. Is it possible that the angels, he created the angels to to be more supportive of loving him than we're capable of because we are mortals that make mistakes and the angels probably did not make mistakes? Well, it's interesting that you should say that because um, in a sense, yes, there are some angels who sort of foul things up, though. Um, but yeah, but I, but it doesn't say that. That's the point. Okay. It doesn't say that. I mean, yes, uh, I would agree. And in principle, what you're saying is a correct statement. The angels in general tend to be servants of God and whatever God says they do. Mm-hmm. I'm okay. sorry. I apologize. Now, the, the rabbis, the rabbis will create midrash to deal with this whole notion of God actually discussing things with them. There's a famous Midrash, you know, that when God came to create human beings, he it, it, it talks about, uh, based upon the point that, the, that Alan made, that line where he says, let us create the human. So it says that God uh, counseled with them about creating the human being. And it's it seems from that Midrash that he's doing that just to sort of Get them involved in the process so they don't feel they should be left out. Mm-hmm. Because now they're creating the whole idea is they're, he is creating a, hu- a human as opposed to the other animals who actually has qualities similar to what the angels have. In other words, the concept to appreciate things spiritual, the concept to create of creating a bond with God. And his fear, his concern was, well, if I didn't ask them, then maybe they'd be insulted. So I don't want to have them insulted. Okay, so I'll ask them. So God did. All right, but then then there's another midrash that says they, so they argue about whether or not the human should be created. This one said, well, you create him, he can do mitzvot. The other guy says, the other group says, no, you do it, and he's going to sin and transgress. You know, he's going to follow things up. And so God's listening back and forth. And finally, it says that God just took one of his attributes of emet, and we're going to see that's coming up soon, truth, truthfulness, faithfulness, okay, and flung it to earth, okay? And that was Torah. And along with that, he created the human being. He decided just, they were arguing. He said, I'm creating, boom, and here's my Torah. The point is, God anticipated that he would create the human and the blueprint of life to make sure that the human lives properly and fits into God's mold of how the human being should operate. So anyway, but the point is, what I want to, I see your hand, Tybal, just wait a second. 
Uh, the point I wanted to make here is that one of the issues that Judaism has had to face from late antiquity and through the Middle Ages, it, it, it began with these mystical dualistic groups. I mentioned them last week who focused on getting into the spiritual, getting out of the physical world into the spiritual world. Okay. And that notion developed, what developed out of that was that the Torah, the, the, the Hebrew law, the law of the Jews is a very this worldly law. It's focused primarily, said these people, on this world, which is the trivial world. The, the spiritual world is the ideal. But these laws are all busy with things, you know, what happens between if if my ox gores your ox, right? If you dig a pit and somebody falls in, right? All these things and the offering of animal sacrifices, okay? And and celebrating holidays and rejoicing and you doing this and that and the other thing. It's all this worldly. So that's not really spiritual. Then, okay. I mean, anybody who said that misses the point of the Bible, but that's neither here nor there. But that was the point they were making. And then later on, <clears throat> excuse me, Christianity picked up on that. And you read throughout the Middle Ages that it starts with, uh, with, uh, um, uh, 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 oh, it just left my head. Oh, no, come on. It begins with an A. Augustine of Hippo. And, mm-hmm. and I think it even begins maybe with Paul in the early, early generation. Anyway, within the early church formation of the church, there is a notion that the Jews only understand the material meaning of God's word. Then the Christians said, we, with, with the teachings of Jesus, understand the spiritual meaning hmm. embedded within the world. And what the, what the, what the Christians didn't understand, if they would have read the Midrash, they would have realized that the Jews fully understand the spiritual element of it. And like them, they were pulling out of the same words that look very physical, some profound spiritual concepts. The only difference was the Jew, Judaism was teaching that humans living in the physical world can be spiritual. The human being can, can be surrounded by physicality, but look at the physicality as a vehicle to grab onto spirituality. Okay. And, and they, they missed it. So I think one of the points that this is making is that God created that spiritual realm. It's another one of God's creation. Not something that this, that the, the God who created the physical world could not have done. And by the way, there were extremists within these groups of, of paganized, uh, people in the Middle East who said, the God of the Bible is, 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 can only create physical. The God of the Bible is non-spiritual. That's how far it went. So mm-hmm. the, what the, by putting it in here, it's telling us that even the spirit, just as God created the physical world and the sort of quasi-spiritual element of it, which is light, right? Which you can't touch. Mm-hmm. In a sense, the light itself is, Immaterials, non-material. So God did that, but even more so, God created these angels. God created the totality of the spiritual realm, and those creatures are praising God, mm-hmm. just as the humans are praising God. Mm-hmm. 
You see, so it's all one system. And I think that's why they put it in here. The theme is creation. You talk about the heavenly lights, right? Well, what's above the heavenly lights? Above the heavenly lights is the highest heaven where God and the angels are. Mm-hmm. But the point is, it's not that that realm was created by some other God. The whole point is the same God who created the physical world created the angels who are part of the spiritual world. And, and, and God created any, any bridges that exist between the two are also the creations of God. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Tybal. So does that mean you said something a while ago that made me wonder in whether angels ever need to do tshuva? Uh, I'm trying to think. No, because theoretically they have no free will. The only time you hear of an angel who's been granted some sort of free will, but we never hear of this angel being uh, reprimanded, is something like uh, where uh, Satan, the Satan, uh, like in, in Job, right, comes to God and says, let's try, let's test this guy and see what he's really like, you know, about Job. And God, God says, okay, go right ahead, you know. And he does what he does. And at the end, doesn't God doesn't yell at the Satan. Okay. Satan became in rabbinic lore, not quite the devil, but the, a very powerful force, temptation, preying on the physical elements of the human being, uh, trying to constantly test us. And in the court, right? Uh, at the time of judgment, the Satan will be behind the, uh, the, the, uh, prosecution. Mm-hmm. You know, so he, that's his role. He's, he's the, you know, in, in high school, I remember you had the principal and then you had the girl's vice principal and the boy's vice principal. Oh, really? And if you got in trouble, who did you go to? Not the principal. You went to the vice principal and he meted out the punishment. Okay. So it's almost as if Satan is kind of a vice prince, not really, because he's not the most powerful angel. But he's a guy there to constantly test and part of the system, not something that's beyond God's control. If God, if that Satan went to God and said, I want to test, uh, you know, Job to see if he is as, as righteous as you say he is. Um, God could have said, no, I trust him. I know him. So go ahead, find something else to do. Could have done that, but he didn't because the book wants us to deal with the whole question of why bad things happen to good people. That's why it's there. That's the whole purpose of it, not to get into the interactions between God and the Satan so much. All right, Barbara, and then Alan. Yeah, it, I, I was reading this thing on the left side of the page yeah. with the, about angels. Yes. I didn't realize that they're, they're considered so one-sided as opposed to us being multi-sided yeah. and having more within us than the angels. And it kind of made me feel like the angels are members of the animal families because like a dog doesn't have the brain that we have and doesn't, doesn't make friends. Uh, I understand. Brain. Yeah. That's an interesting observation. Um, uh, but we're, we're more, you can argue that's, that's a good point. Actually, we are the pain in the neck for God. Yeah. We're God's headache, not the angels. Read yeah. the Bible. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. And, and God created us this way. Question is, 
Well, according, it depends upon which of the Torah sources you read. Did God realize when he created us what he was doing? God, you know, there are places in the Torah where God learns from experience, right? It's, it's, it's there. Read, especially in the first few chapters of Genesis. Not the first chapter, but second, third, fourth chapters. God learns from experience. Ever hear of the flood? Yeah. Right? Not the one that happened just two days ago. I mean, the, the real... That one wasn't as bad as in January. January was much worse. Yes, that's true. But uh, but there wasn't an earthquake in the middle of that one. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yes. All right. Anyway, well, the point is, though, that, um, uh, yeah, we're more complex. We definitely are. I mean, but even when you, when you go, I don't want to get into it right now, but there's stories, there's a whole literature on what that realm, the realm of the angels is like. And they develop things more deep in a more detailed fashion, but that's because they're focusing on that. And it was a whole attempt at spiritual. It was, it was mysticism. It was mysticism. Okay. It's the same thing. The Kabbalah, the Zohar has mysticism, has, has an element of activity that within the divine structure that goes awry and e and evil comes out of that. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's part of the emanated lower es- aspect of God. And that's where the evil came. Because what was it? Remember what, what Isaiah says in chapter 45? God creates or light and darkness and good and evil. Mm-hmm. Right? So everything comes from God. Now, the angel, the angels are not necessarily the sources of evil. We don't believe that the realm of evil is a fallen angel. Okay. We do not believe that. It's not part of basic Judaism. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. All right. So they, they put it here to remind us as we're talking about God, the creator, that God not only created the visible and material worlds, but he also created the spiritual world. The totality of existence ultimately comes from God. So it covers all the bases, so to speak. That's why it's there. All right. Now, um, who else had a hand up? Well, I guess I, I got it. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, two things. First, the rabbis treated the angels in a very different way than the, than the mystics are going to do it because they said, that the, the angel is simply, is simply going to be the, a messenger. That's it. You know, that's right. Yeah. They're like, it's like with the, the angels, not Olimba Yordim, they come down to the just and they're like completely subservient to God with no essentially independent power. And yet there's no mention of when they were created in, in Genesis about when they were created. It seems like it all comes into play. And it's more as a response to Jewish mysticism that later on takes place that the angels gain more prominence and Gabriel and, and, and everyone yeah, else. Yes, probably, well, I mean, yes they, they pop up from time to time, right? Uh, you know, Jacob with the man, right? Um, Abraham with the, with the angels, they're there, right? They're there. And Samson right. being born, the, the angels then, coming down. Right. And we talked about this a few times ago. Remember when we uh, maybe you weren't here. Right. You know, where Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh comes from, it's Isaiah having his vision in chapter 6 of angels. Okay. And then you have Ezekiel seeing angels. And Isaiah, we're not sure if those angels were down here visiting or he actually had a view of heaven. It's not clear. 
clearly Ezekiel, the angels were down here. So the Bible has those things, and the rabbis had to deal with that. So yes, they became, they, they you know, dealt with it in a certain way. You're right, the mystics, who, who's, remember, mysticism is a, it is a, an impulse, a need to elevate oneself while still alive into the realm of the absolute spiritual, to sort of get that element of the potential within the mystic, so the mystic believes. It's within me. I need to develop it the same way that I have my develop my relationship to the physical world. Mm-hmm. And I would be totally fulfilled. Okay? Maimonides would say, no, no, no. It's if you fill your mind with knowledge and understanding, then you'll be totally fulfilled as a human being. You don't want to go up into the realm of the angels. It was not well, he talked about it a little, but it's not central to his belief. So we even have differences there. But the point is, yes, in a sense, the focus started with the biblical mystics. I'm sorry, with the, with the the mystics, I said the wrong term, the mystics of the period of the Talmud from the third, fourth, fifth, sixth centuries. That's when a lot of that stuff you're talking about and I'm talking about develops. But where does it end up? In the sea door, in the Moxor. That's how powerful that was. So it's not just mystics. The people who pray this aren't mystics. We do. And some of us here may be mystics. I'm interested in mysticism, but I do not consider myself a believing mystic. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, that's the key point. And the prayer book was much more used than Bible or Talmud by the average Jew in the course of the average week. Okay, the prayers that you say, right? It's all spiritual activity. And you're talking to the great God who provides you with this and provides you with that and provides you with this. So that's the thing. It, the, the, the interesting thing is it came from a very limited group of people. And how many times have we seen in the course of reading the prayers, this kind of repetitive mantra-type statement over and over and over and over again. Do you remember? We're going to see some more in just a minute. Okay? So that that the prayers actually pull this into the realm of the common person. Okay? All right. Page 75, bottom paragraph. It's the end of the Yotzer blessing before you come to Ahava Rabbah with great love. Okay, that's the last part of, remember, everything we've been doing here, it began the blessing, this is a very long blessing, with all kinds of stuff in the middle of it, began with the creator of light and darkness and good and evil, right? And that's just a very uh, simplistic interpretation, we went to that a couple weeks ago, okay? Um, So it began with that, and now here we are a few pages later, at the end of that blessing, with the final blessing. Remember, we said you have there's there's a whole structure here of blessings, and it's a well thought out structure. It's not just haphazard. Okay, so now we are after we have finished with the the this praising of the angels Baruch Kavod Komo, praised be God from His place. Okay, that's coming from the book of Ezekiel. After before that, we said Holy, 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 Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh coming from the book of Isaiah. 
So the and the, those are key elements of the Bible where angels are involved, indubitably. Okay. All right. Now, Le'el Baruch Ni'imot Yitainu. Okay, that's the that's the last lesson. All right. So <clears throat> the it's interesting. Um, one second. Here you find this word Ni'ima in the uh paragraph before Kadosh Kadosh, the line before Kadosh Kadosh Kadosh. It's a kind of a melody. Okay? And it says that so the angels with a clear melodious statement of holiness, Ni'ima. So here they are talk it starts with it it's a bridge. So they, they, they give this sweet, melodious praise to God, meaning they, the angels. Okay, the angels. To the king who is eternal, lives eternally. They say, Yomeru, uh, they say words of song and melody, Tishbachot, Yashmiu. And the words of, of praise, right? Okay, that's still talked because, why? Kihu levadok, is he by himself is, here we go. Ho'el gevurot, osechadashot, bal michamot, zorea tzedekot, matzmiach yeshuot, borei refuot, norati hilot, adonah mitlaot. Did you hear it? Mm-hmm. You hear it? The repetition of sounds and rhythm? Mm-hmm. Eight times, okay, it, it, repeating, repeating. It's a kind of a mantra. Think about it in those terms, okay? Ein kelohenu, ein kadonenu, ein kemalkenu, ein kemoshienu, me, da 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 da, right? Oel gevurot, dosecha dashot, baal milchamot, zorea tzedakot, matzmiach yishuot, borei refuot, norati ilot, Forget about the meaning for a moment. The sound. Mm-hmm. That's mysticism. That's mysticism. When you look at these books that the mystics wrote sometime in the 4th and 6th century, it's all over the place. And this is short. It's only eight segments. Okay, we're going to see one. We've already seen one that has 15. We're going to see another one soon. It's got 16 segments. Mm-hmm. I always remind you of Kaddish. Yit barach, the yishtabach, the yit baar, the yit romam, the yit nasay, the yit tadar, the yit tale, the yit halal. Eight times. Different words. Same idea. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Mantra. Mysticism. Powerful. These are the things people remember. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. That's biblical. That's from the, the Bible has certain elements of it. Rare, not that not that often, but they're there. We talked about that in some of the Psalms weeks ago, where you have repetition like this. Okay. All right. So what does it mean? So he God, he's creator of mighty things, new things. He's the master of war. Where how does war get in here? He see he he spreads seeds of righteousness, causes redemption to flourish, to flourish. He creates healing. And he's great in praise, he's praised awesomely. And he is the master of awesome, of, of, of miraculous acts. 
Okay, this is this this is God. Okay, again, total praise, absolute, in proportions that we normally do not use. That's again, I mentioned this before. This language is is word is not normal. Now you do find this in certain references to kings in many different cultures, but you know that's, you can think of sometimes the names that royalty has. Some, you know, they have these names, Edward, this and that, and this and that, and this and that. Okay. But that's not, that's sort of recalling ancestors, right? It, I mean, it's a sort of a mantra, but it's different. This is rhythmic. This is poetic. And that's the poetry of prayer. The poetry of prayer is a tool that tries to elevate us into a spiritual place. And it's all over the place. And we read it, and we often don't even realize it. That's why I'm teaching this class. Okay? That's what this is about. All right? Now, you may not be, you may be bothered by that, by the way. There are some people who read this and say, boy, it's so boring. Enough already. Why do I have to have it drummed into my head? You know, if you're a rationalist, you can say that. You know? Sometimes simpler is better. Right? There were rabbis we talked about this who said, you can't overpraise God because once you stop, you're blaspheming because God's praise is endless. This literature says, try your best. You know, use as many as you can, realizing that, but nonetheless, move us in that direction. Okay. That's what this is saying. So, but people are, some people say, this is, this is gobbledygook. But I think if you appreciate the fact that it's spiritual gobbledygook, you may not be spiritual. You may be very rational, very this worldly. Okay, that's how you are. But there are people who are, lots of people who are speaking, seeking some kind of elevated spiritual expression. That's what this is supposed to do. Does it do it to a person in the 21st century? I don't know. I'm sure sometimes for me it does. Honestly, when I get into these things, I'm sort of removed from my normal place, you know, and, and, and I'm not a big mystic, don't get me wrong, but it's just a matter of focusing on something other than the mundane world around you. Okay, uh, Tybal, did I see a hand up? Yes. Um, I'm just be interested because for me, it's not the words, it's the, it's the music that goes along. Good. That's fine. The only problem with that is the music changes depending upon who's leading the service. Yeah, and sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. And is right. Jennifer Lowe still there? And when Jennifer Lowe's around, we get Anna Bakoa. <laughs> I'm with Jennifer. <laughs> Raise your hand, Jennifer. You're with Hoorah. Complimenting Jennifer. Hoorah. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> All right. So then now, so here we go. Then it continues, God renews in his goodness every day the act of creation. Okay? You know, it's this notion, when your soul comes back to you after a respite at night, you are reborn in the morning. Right? I give thanks to you, God, that you return my soul complete and I'm back together again. What about if you take a nap in the afternoon? Is the, when you wake up from that, should you say anything? Wake up from what? A nap in the afternoon. So you, no. so you, huh? No. <laughs> no. Why not? No. It's the same thing, isn't it? 
Well, you know, it's not dark. It's not dark outside. You know, it's not dark. I don't. You're asking me a question I can't answer, Barbara. I don't know. Oh, okay. I love right. that questions you can't answer. Right. So anyway, but look, he he creates out of his goodness. Again, the world with all of its material corruption, right? And you can say that because nature has built into it what you could call corruption, doesn't it? When a plant grow, when a, when you take, you look, look at a piece of fruit on the tree. What happens to it if it hangs there too long? It rots. It rots, becomes corrupted. It falls off and falls on the ground and becomes fertilizer. Right? Okay. Right? So, I mean, physicality, there's a, everything is, the whole point is, I'm going to be 80 years old. Believe me, my body has become corrupted vis-a-vis where it was 40 years ago. And if you tell me otherwise, telling you you're wrong, right? There's parts of it that don't work as well as they used to. Let's be honest about it. So far, I'm okay. Don't get me, don't get me wrong. But I realize that it's a form of decomposing. Yes, it is. Right. Thank you, Barbara. <laughs> but for both of us, senior member right now of our little cohort here. Okay. Anyhow, so so the point is that's that's the nature thing. But but to say that you know to have the sense that I'm I personally am reborn every day. The world is recreated every day. Mm-hmm. It, it's a fresh start. It's it's it, and look at the newness of it. You know, and look at the the hopefulness that exists that perhaps something can happen. I can do something. God can help me with something and we can make this day a better one than the one before it. All right. So that's what this one point, one point. Hold on, Alan. I see it. I see it. But the point is with his goodness, the world is essentially a good place. There is this, there is this corruption that takes place. There is this decomposition that takes place. But that's the way it's set up. But it's set up. It's a good system. It's a good system. So, so, so the fruit that fell on the ground and was absorbed back into the earth, so to speak, is now providing fertilizer so that when the tree drops some seeds in the ground, they can grow into baby trees. Mm-hmm. But the big tree dies, there'll some be baby trees to take over. Okay, I'm just using that as a metaphor. But that's the nature of things. But thank God I'm up. <laughs> The world is here. Wonderful. Okay. Who had a hand? Somebody had a hand up. Oh, Alan, yes. I just want to add this, this particular line is the one line I focus on every day. This and its counterpart before and when they reverse Mechadesh and Uthuvo, but this yeah. thought about creating anew in goodness each day, the, the act of creation that, that God does. Yes. Corollary. To that is learning from, uh, from Elliot Dorf over 50 years ago with the old UJ that Adam Shutafma Sebereshit, that we yes. humans are partners with God in the act of creation. Yes, of course. So if God, as you rightly noted, Joel, if, if God creates each do the, each day the act of creation, we are partners with God in doing that, then each and every day can bring goodness for us to learn something new, to create something new. Right. And so, this is something that motivates me and keeps me going each and every day. Exactly. I forgot his name right now, just left me. 
but the, the, the psychologist who was in a concentration camp. Victor Frankl. Right. And the, the flower on the tree, he saw it out the window, the crack in the, you know, in, in the barracks every day. And the fact that it was there, it renewed him. Okay. So it's right. It, it, you know, and this is supposed to engender within us that kind of an attitude. Exactly. It's why it's here. Then it continues. Right. This is from the psalm that we say, you know, in, in the morning on Shabbos and the holidays. Okay. Then it says, now, this is, this next line is really interesting. Or Khadash al Tsionta Ir Benizkehulana Meherali Oro. May a new light shine upon Zion, and may we all merit quickly in its light. Okay? All right. Does anybody have a problem with that line? I like it. Anyone have a problem with that line? Yeah. That's Alan. Well, it could always be viewed as messianic that this is going to be the new light, that the existing uh, lights of the world are going to be overturned in a new age of what, when, when, when the Messiah comes in and joins us and, and redeems the world and becomes right, the light of have, the world. Does this have anything to do with the, the theme of the overall blessing? I, you know, I'm, I'm, this is the... Well, be, it would be the light, kind of like... It, it, the, it's not just the creation of a light, but light of, you know, it's more midrashic about viewing light of, of, of God or a new light that's going exactly. to be in Zion. Okay, fine. But it is, it is exotic, if that's what you just said. Yeah. It doesn't really, this not, this has said, the world, you know, redeem, the concept redeemer pops up here and there. But it's, it's almost, you know, part of God's description. But when you have, remember this point, generally speaking, the line before the blessing is the, is the most important, is one of the most important lines in the prayer because it's supposed to capture the basic essence of the prayer. Okay. So the line before the blessing, especially in long prayers like this, where you have multiple lines. All right. So the question is, Given everything we've said up until this point, does this capture the essence of the prayer that has come before it? Yeah. Where did we find a prayer for light to fall upon Zion? Where else? And where in the prayer? Nowhere. The light that was being spoken of was what light? The universal light, the light of creation. Yeah. That's what was being spoken of. That was being spoken of. Okay. So what Alan said is midrashically, one could make the case, you should put it in, because we always pray for our redemption, right? Especially Jews in diaspora, okay? Especially Jews in diaspora. Okay. It makes me feel good to read that line. Yes. If you're a Zionist, yes. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's basic Judaism. God will redeem us. We're going to see it again and again. Absolutely. When it talks about Zion, I believe it encompasses us. I don't think it's just in Israel. I'm sorry. I think. Oh, but that, then you're you're doing a, your own midrash on it, and that's fine. But that's not what it says. 
that says specific, the, the, the messianic element of it is actually in Zion. Because when the light shines on Zion, it will bring us in. We will be brought into it. It's the messianic era. We will be brought into it. That's the whole point. So we will benefit. We in diaspora will benefit because we will brought, be brought to Zion to share in its light. Okay, so that's what you should feel, I would say. I would amend your feeling if you accept that. You don't have to. All right. But the yeah. point here is you can understand. No, so here's where am I heading with this? There was a major argument in the 10th century between two of the greatest scholarly minds, the Babylonian Academy community, two giants, Sadia and Shrira. They were Ge'onim. They were heads of the academies. Okay. Sadia was the first medieval Jewish philosopher. After Philo in antiquity, it lived, who lived about 40 of the common era, jump ahead 800 years, literally, to Sadia. He is the next philosopher. Okay. He opened up ways of thinking that ultimately ended up with Maimonides. Mm. All right. He was influenced by Arabic culture and Islamic theology. Okay. But he knew philosophy from the sources that had been uncovered in Iraq and Syria. And the Arabs studied them and they became the first medieval philosophers. And Jews who had a bent in that direction learned from them. And it developed over time. You have Judah Halevi and then Rambam and others who are living, and, and it continues down into the 15th century in Spain. Okay, philosophical thought in medieval terms. Okay, so Rambam, I'm sorry, Maimonides is part of this. He's a giant in many ways. The, the 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 giant, but I don't think if Sadia hadn't begun, Rambam would never have come on the scene. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Sadia says you cannot say this line. Take it out mm. because the prayer is a prayer of the light of creation and only creation. I love the concept. I mean, he's not saying this. The concept of the light of Zion, I will agree to that. As a messianic principle, I would agree to that, but not here. Mm. I have a theory as to why he was so sensitive to that. The theory is this. The philosophy or the theology that Ram, that my, that the Sadia, that Sadia learned from the Muslims called Kalam taught that one of the proofs of God's existence, the proof that there is a God, is by virtue of the fact that there is a world. Because this world would not exist unless there was such a God, who a single deity who could create everything. Okay, that's what Kalam taught. And Sadia bought that hook, line, and sinker. His approach was the very creation of the universe proves the existence of God. So he's reading this prayer and suddenly Zion pops up. What is he thinking? 
Here you get a prayer that praises God to do for doing what? Creating, not redeeming. It's a universal prayer. It's nothing to do with the Jewish people. We are the beneficiaries like the rest of the world, including the animals. Okay, all the creatures and the angels, everybody benefited from the creation. And now suddenly our unique redemption comes in, in the line right before the final blessing. Oi, give out. He did not speak Yiddish, I guarantee you. <laughs> but if there is an Arabic equivalent to that, inshallah, or whatever. Inshallah. That's what he said. Over my dead body. Take it out. A hundred years later or so, less than a hundred years later, the other great Gaon, Shrira, was not, not a great philosopher, but he was a halakhic authority. Both were great legal authorities. Shrira as well. He's a great legalist. There's no question. And among the last of the great Gaonim, his son, Rabhai, was the final of the great leaders uh, of those academies. We're talking about around a thousand, a thousand to a thousand fifty common era. That's when they lived in Iraq. All right. So he says it was there before Sadia took it out and it's going to be back in there now. As far as I'm concerned, it's part of the liturgy. It's part of our prayer. It's part of our ultimate hope. And it's as important as the creation. Okay, remember Rosenzweig, writing in the 20th century, said the three basic principles, creation, revelation, and redemption. Or creation, redemption, revelation. Okay, creation, redemption, revelation. Okay. So redemption is one of the basic elements. Shriru would agree. Sadia would disagree. All right, here's the kicker. The final conclusion. The bottom line. Today, if you go into a Mizrahi synagogue, Right, it's where Jews from Morocco, from Iraq, from Syria, from Egypt, from Iran, and a few other places, and Sephardic Jews who maintain the old Spanish traditions. That line is not there. I have seen the room on my shelf. It's out. It's not there because those those traditions kept. Saja's principle. So when somebody tells you, oh, these prayers are old, they've always been the same, they're universal, no. And this is really important stuff here. Okay? So, we, our tradition is to say it. I'm fine with it, because I don't believe that the creation (laughs) proves that there's a God. And that's not my theology. All right? And the most Rambam turned that around. Okay, he he rejected that completely. Now Rambam did. Shreer wasn't a philosopher; he was just a traditionalist. So he said it should be, because it's something. We, but isn't that interesting? And and you can see here Sadia's anger because it was tampering with his theology, it was tampering with his spirituality. His definition of God depended upon a, a pure statement. Of God as creator of the universe. Mm-hmm. Rivera didn't deny that. He did not. He just said, this is okay. We can do both. Problem, if this thing had been a few lines further back, maybe Satya would have been able to swallow it. I don't know. 
Uh, probably not. But the fact that it comes right before the blessing, mm-hmm. that's really what pushed his button. Interesting. Hot debate. Okay, then finally, Baruch wrote, Praise be God, creator of the lights. Not the angels, the lights. In other words, it doesn't even deal with the darkness of the beginning, what the line from Isaiah, light and, you know, creator of light and darkness, you know, uh, creator of harmony and chaos and evil, right? Doesn't even go there. Lights. That's because that's the essence here. And it's a gift out of love and goodness to the entire world. Universe. All right. Now, a radical shift in gears. Okay. We are now shifting 180 degrees. What page? We're moving away. We're now on page 76. We're making progress, guys. The next prayer, Ahava Rabbah. Okay. So this prayer speaks totally about and to the Jewish people. And it's totally about God's relationship through Torah with the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Torah as a covenant of love and compassion. That's how I'm defining it. Torah as a covenant of love and compassion. And we will see at the end how this really does generate a covenantal statement. But I'm not going to tell you what it is till we get there. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. So <clears throat> let me first begin by telling you what you are going to be reading in it. You will find the word love is mentioned six times. Three, it refers to God's love for us. And three, it refers to our loving God. So right away, that, and I don't know if somebody actually did the counting to make sure they were even or just happened to be that way. I can't prove one or the other. But it's very interesting if you're talking about a covenantal relationship, right? It's a quid pro quo. It's I do for you and you do for me. That's a covenant. Well, making it three and three lines it right up, tit for tat, right? Three for three. All right, so keep that in mind. Okay, ahavaraba ahavtanu. With great love have you loved us. Adonai Eloheinu, Lord our God. An amazing compassion, act of compassion. Okay? Look at the translate. Um, yeah, boundless compassion. Okay? So the Torah is abundantly compassionate. Or it's a no, it's an expression of God's abundant compassion. Love, compassion. Where else did we find God acting with compassion? People who have been here for the last number of weeks. What else, what other act did God, did God express God's compassion? Remember? Creation. We mentioned, right? Rahman, Rahman, Merachem. Multiple times. In the, in, in the Yotzer blessing. Okay. We talked about it last week or two weeks ago that, you know, there the world was created. God's compassion. It was an act of compassion, an act of love. So here it is again. 
But now it's referring to what? When it says, Avtanu, you who have loved us. Who is the recipient of this love? The world? Us. No, Anu, us. That means <laughs> this is totally particularistic. Mm-hmm. As universalistic as the other one was, this is totally, totally focused on one group of people. And what does that say about God? Pretty good guy. <laughs> I like that. Pretty good God. Yeah, good. <laughs> think, think now. Think. Go back into ancient times. Generally speaking, how do people view gods? As as location specific. Say again. Lo- geographically defined, yes. location specific. Location specific. Yes, that's right. Your people have this god. This people has this god. Yeah. Yes, exactly. In fact, um, in the fourth century of the Common Era, uh, Julian the Apostate, he's called, the Emperor Julian, he was called an apostate by the Christians because he was, this is two generations after Constantine accepted, no, yeah, 360. So two generations after Constantine the Great accepted Christianity and made it the Roman Empire religion. This guy, Julian the Apostate, came along and said, nope, we're going back to paganism, guys. Mm-hmm. For better or for worse, he lasted three years and was killed in battle. Okay. And, of course, all the all the Christians said, see, I told you so. <laughs> he died. He died. Bingo. Goodbye. All right, but he tried. Anyway, his whole point was, he said, tells the Jews, you want to rebuild the temple? Rebuild the temple. Rebuild the temple. You have my blessings. And they actually started. It didn't work. Well, we'll get into that. They, some people started to dig. There was an explosion. They probably made a spark with a metal shovel on a piece of stone or an axe or something on a piece of stone. And there was probably gas collected under the ground because of all the decomposed wood that had been in the temple yeah. and the bones and dead bodies, whatever was in there too. Right. And it exploded, and they said, ah, and it scared them away. And then the, then the emperor died, so it was left undone. All right. Mm-hmm. But the point is, he said to the Jews, go right ahead. Build a temple to your God. I love it. Your God, fine. He'll be my God. I'll respect him. I'm not going to, I won't maybe worship him the way, worship him the way I do, you know, one of the Roman gods, but I'll have great respect for him. And he'll like that about me, and he'll help me too. That's exactly probably what Cyrus was thinking centuries before when he told the Jews in Babylonia in the exile in about 538 uh, BCE, go back and rebuild your temple. And he did the same for the Babylonians and for Thisians and for Thosians because the local gods would be happy that they got this guy on his side, on their sides, and it's great. So gods tended to be the gods of a given people. Judaism says, yes, Hashem is the God of the Jewish people. But he's also Melech HaOlam, Adon Olam, the universal God. Mm-hmm. Both. Both. Now, Christianity and Islam got that. There's no question. Because their God is universal. 
special relationship with a certain group of people. Same mm-hmm. concept. Okay, but there were, it took a long time for paganism to go away. Okay, and as you've seen, it, it tried to raise its ugly head, so to speak. All right, so the point is, yes, God is the universal one God. But yes, God also has a special relationship with a certain people. Remember I told you before, God has a covenant with the entire human race. Anybody remember what it's called? The covenant the, is of the Noah, Noahide. Noahide, yeah. Noahide, Noah, right, with the children of Noah. Exactly. Because mm-hmm. that's everybody. God has one. And we just have our own little special one. Mm-hmm. So that's what this is telling us now. Yes to both. Okay, Tybal. Um, I've heard, I've heard the argument that when you say paganism, that it lasted even through the time of judges and kings, because otherwise the prophets wouldn't have been so worked up about the Ashtaroth all over. Oh yeah, yeah, that's early. I'm talking about down into, uh, into the uh, common era. Oh, never mind. Yeah, like example would be Julian the Apostate. Sure. Oh, no, you're right. I mean, paganism within the Israelites, absolutely. It continued to operate quite actively, uh, whether it was kosher or not kosher, depending upon which king you're talking about. Um, yeah, read the Bible. There's no question. Seems to have dissipated when they came back from Babylonia. Okay. But we don't know, by the way, what the people who reign, who stayed, many of the Jews, probably most of the Jews who were exiled in 586, uh, to Bab- taken to Babylonia, BCE I'm talking about. We have no idea what they're, how they worship God. There is a, there's no question that as time wore on, their Monotheism took hold because when you, when the curtain rises on those communities in the early rabbinic period or the pre-rabbinic period, they're into heavy into their Judaism. There's no question about that. But were there times when they were dabbling in paganism as well? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. Okay. <clears throat> so Torah is love. Torah is compassion. Okay. Avinu Malkenu, our father, our king. Okay. I'm not training, I'm not saying that as our parent here because I just want to stick to the original meaning. You'll find in the line here, Avinu Malkenu, Bavur, Avotenu, Vimotenu. We've added in matriarchs there. Okay. And it's in the Moxor as well. Okay. It's, that's where you'll see it. But the point is, we're talking about here this concept. You can say parent. It's okay. But, uh, you know, father has a certain specific definition for it, uh, associated with it. Malkinu, you know, the, the, so to speak, the power of patriarchy, right? Which I am opposed to. But in antiquity, that was the nature of culture, right? The patriarch mm-hmm. and the power of the king, right? Two different, in different venues, two different powerful sort of people. Yes. Okay. What comes first? Sir, you think about it. This is not, you, some of you have heard me say this many times. I mean, I've thrown this into sermons and classes for the last 40 years. So it must have popped up somewhere. Avinu al-Kenu. That prayer we say on the high holidays a lot, right? 
Avinu Malkeinu. Do we say Malkeinu Avinu? Do we put the king first? No. no. It's always Papa. Okay. And it's true. I, I challenge you to find somewhere in our liturgy, in our sacred books, where you have this duad, right? Where father is second. It's always Abinu Malkeinu. Why? Think about what the first line said. With great love have you loved us and with the great father, love. The father's more compassionate than the king. Yes. The king issues edicts and the people follow. The king leads the people into battle, right? And makes war. The king will decide who shall live and who shall die, right? The father doesn't do that. And the father, the father, maybe he could be a stern guy, requires the kids to hold the line, you know, and he maybe punishes them too. But generally speaking, unless he's psychotic, he loves his children and he's doing it because he believes it's in their best interest. Now, the king might love his people, but ultimately what the king wants to do is stay in power. We know that very well from all kinds of places. All right. Now, kings are, yeah, they, they cared for their people. And sometimes they were viewed in fatherly terms. But in principle, it's not the same. God, remember, on the high holidays, we view God as being our king, which implies what, what kind of legal activity? Judge, because the king was the alt. He was the, he was the final court of appeals, right? Think about uh, Solomon and the two ladies with the baby, right? They go to the king. They can say it's a story. Uh, maybe it happened. We're not sure. There are a lot of stories that are woven into the history there. But let's say it happened. Okay, so he figured out, remember the Solomonic, the Solomonic wisdom, the Solomonic decision. He's the king. You go to the king. All right, so but parents, father, first. Because the father ultimately has love and compassion. The king may have respect for the people or, you know, concern for the people, but he also is the final judge, law, right? So king always comes first. Okay, so. Avino comes first. I'm sorry. Yes, that was a big slip, wasn't it? Yes, Yes, it was. Erase that. And I know you loved your father, so I don't believe that. No, of course I did. And my father-in-law, too, for that. And my grandfather. And my grandmother and my mother. Well, I was going to say, I think that the fact that Avino should come first just because of the fact that without our fathers, none of us would be here. Mm-hmm. But well, I could therefore, also... That, therefore, the father should be before... And that's very good. I like that, actually. I haven't thought about it. Right. I mean, it's true. Father and mother, are the, that's why our mourning period, you know, the, the, the longest mourning period, mourning with a U, is for parents. It's 12 months. Where everybody else, everybody else, it's one month. I must say, I do think that a kid, for a kid, you should do it for a lot. Well, that's, that's a different issue. I'm saying the principle is. Yeah. Principle is because of what you just said, Barbara. Don't pull it back. I'm not. They gave us something. They gave us life. Life. 
Exactly. So that in and of itself warrants priority over the king. Okay. Now, God then is both, right? Because God gave us life, but this is telling us that ultimately God gives us Torah out of compassion and love, great love. Okay, let's see what happens here. By virtue, because of the uh, faith and trust our ancestors had for you, and you taught them laws of life. It's like Torah is life. What does it say at the end of, Gen- of, of Deuteronomy in the Torah? To choose Torah, choose life. So Torah is life. Again, talking about the, the way certain people in antiquity and even today view the legal system of Judaism. It's life. It's life. It's It governs physical life on earth, and it sets the tone for a kind of life that allows us to enter into eternal spiritual life when we leave this world. That's essentially what this is all about. Okay? Mm-hmm. So you taught us the rules for living. So shall you have grace upon us. Be again, Chain always goes with chesed, with 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 compassion, loving kindness, sorry. Be loving for us and teach us, teach us. We want to learn, God. Our Father, teach us. Now, listen to this. Avinu, our Father. Ha'av, the Father. Ha'rachaman, the so Avinu, our Father. The compassionate Father. The compassionate one. Rachem Aleinu. So you have two Avi, two Abbas and three compassions. Boom, 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 boom. Father, compassion. This is overkill. Or let's say it's emphasis. Mm-hmm. Emphasis. Repetition is emphasis in Hebrew. Many languages it is. Okay. But here, look, we say, look how many times Abba appears here, right? Abba. Avinu, Avinu, Ha'av, three times. Rachaman, Rachem, Rachem, three times right there. But you already had Hanenu, Chemla, all these words of compassion. Torah is compassion. Why is Torah compassion? Hmm? Why is Torah compassion? In the overall. Look, there's things in, there's some stuff in our, in the ancient Torah, which we have a lot of problems with. Stoning, for example. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is it compassion? Taibo. Um, I'm going to say, looking at the meaning of Torah, which is teaching that it's compassionate to give those who are subject to authority the, the way in which to understand how the authority works and do better. Correct. That's a good way of putting it. Right. In other words, Torah, Torah is not kept secret. That's the point. It says in Deuteronomy, it's not in heaven. Torah was given to us. God, what's saying is teach us. We want to do Torah. We want to learn Torah. We want to live by Torah. So it's an act of compassion because if it's followed, you create a society that ultimately will be a caring, compassionate society. Mm-hmm. That's what it's about. It's what it's supposed to be. Look at the basic. Love your, love your other, love the other person, right? All the, the, the basic are there. I mean, even the punishments that exist are there in order to make sure that in the overall, 
society avoids doing what brought on that punishment because the act that brought about the punishment was an act that denied the compassion, that destroyed the love. Right? If you murder somebody, right? I'm not going to argue whether or not you believe in capital punishment, but the fact of the matter is when you murder somebody, you have brought chaos into the world, hate, animosity, all kinds of bad stuff. So the murderer has got to be removed from from the from society. That's it, and that's a punishment. Goodbye. However, you define the goodbye. Okay, that's what it's saying. All right, and everybody else learned from that. That's not how you create a loving world. Murdering people is not doesn't create a world full of love. Okay, it's a hard one, right? You make war, right? You've got a war now going on because everybody who's, I think, sort of compassionate, if you will, thinks is assuming that maybe if we do this now, we won't have to have something worse come afterwards. We are reminded of some other dictator who wanted to gobble up land and uh, his gobbling began and nobody stopped him. So he thought that he could just keep gobble and gobble, right? right? And you saw what happened. 55 million people died. It's called World War II. Of course, there was the other one on the other side too. Anyway, but you get the point. So the point is, the ultimate purpose of Torah, what this is telling us is, is to create a harmonious world. God created our a relatively harmonious physical world. Okay, we under the more you understand the world, you more you understand how there is harmony. Sometimes it's not perfect harmony, granted. Mm-hmm. All right, but on the other hand, in general, things operate according to a system. Now, you know, sometimes people, some some creatures can t- tamper with the system. Okay. And you make, I mean, look, it's very interesting. You can make the case that a, you know, that, that climate change resulted in this tornado, uh, hurricane, tropical storm. Make the, make the case. Climate change had nothing to do with the earthquake, as far as we know. That happened. That was on God's, that God did that one, right? God created a planet with plates that moved. Of course, we human beings were stupid enough to build cities along the plates, places where the plates are, right? We tend to build cities along rivers that flood too, don't we? Yeah. So, I mean, we build them, you think, because they're the best places to build. If you want transportation, movement of people, movement of goods, right? You want to live in these places. And sometimes a volcano is a horrible thing, right? But gosh, the soil after a volcano erupts is very, very rich, isn't it? And plant all kinds of good stuff. Why do you think they have such good wine up in the Golan? Because it's all good. It's all volcanic earth up there. It's dark. It's good. All right. Anyway, you get my point. Anyhow, so, <clears throat> excuse me. It's all, it's compassion is embedded with, it's this weird concept because you think of law, you think of reward and punishment, very cut and dry. In certain elements it is, but the, it, the cut and dryness of the law is supposed to end up creating a system that is ultimately caring, especially with respect to human beings. All right. Final point, and we're going to have to finish this next week, but I got to get to this. 
So we have Avinu Ha'av HaRachaman HaMarachem Rachem Eleinu. We hear that Rachaman, Rachem, Marachem. You hear the sounds, yeah? V'tein Belibenu. Now listen to this. Lahavin Ulahaskil, Lishmoa, Lil Modu Lalamed, Lishmor Velasot Ulakayen. Eight terms to understand and to get the knowledge, get the, uh, um, uh, what should I say? To but succeed, but it comes, it's the word seichel, comprehend, mm-hmm. to listen, to learn, to teach, to observe, to do, and to maintain what? Kol direi Talmud Torah techa be'ahava. Okay. Teach us to do all of this with love. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's what we want to teach us how to do this with love. All right. Notice there, here's eight terms. Lahavin, lahaskil, lishmo. So ultimately, there's a rubric here of what Torah means. Torah means doing Torah. It's not just learning Torah. It's not just teaching Torah. It's not just understanding Torah. It's not getting the common sense of Torah. It's not just listening to Torah. It's not just following Torah. It's not just doing Torah. It's not just sustaining, keep, keeping it going. It's all of that. So ultimately, Torah is to be done. We do Torah with all, trying to make a broad-based rubric here. It's doing Torah. And this is an act of love. And we should, and here that line, ba'ahava, that word at the end, it's not clear, is God doing all this out of love for us? Or is he telling us to do Torah with love for us? It can actually go both ways. And maybe it's intentional. Okay, we're going to stop here, finish up. Next week, we're going to see how this flows into a clearly cut, clear cut, clearly defined covenant statement in what follows. So if you want to look in your Moxor or Sidur, what follows after this blessing, and I would read not just the first line of what follows this blessing, read some of the paragraphs. And if you can come back next week and tell me where the covenant is, I'll give you a gold star. Oh, cool. <laughs> Our final that's, point, that's Bible, Bible, yes, quickly. Um, what I want to say is what we say as Jews is uh, when people have died is may their memories be for a blessing. And part of what you talked about tonight reminded me of my father, the cantor, may his memory be for a blessing, because particularly at this time as he prepared for Cold Nadre. Anyway, so that's just a picture, not just, that is a picture of him on the Bema. Oh, I see. Wow. Because just a bunch of things you said when you kept talking about the father and music is my connection and now I'll stop. So I just want to thank everybody because this gave me some moments tonight in which I, my father's memory was for a blessing. Oh man, this is good. All right. So let us all keep making blessings too. This is a good thing. All right. We will see one another next week. Please God be healthy and may the sunshine may not be too hot. And uh, let's hope that the next rains of fall are gentle. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. 
If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.